0: All right, as the baskets make their way around, you make your way to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. We're going to read it straight through. We're going to ask, what is this saying to us today? Jonah chapter 2. Short little passage, 10 verses. Have you found it? If you did not bring a Bible, one of the cool things about the Internet is you can just type in any search engine, Jonah Jonah 2. And it'll pull it up. We're in the New American Standard Version, a word for word translation. Makes it easy to do Bible study. Can sound a little wooden every now and again, but it definitely helps us to get at the heart of what the original language and the original audience was being told. All right, so Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. Cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight; nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death, the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple, into your temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. All right, may God bless the teaching of his word Here's the key verse. The key verse is the last part of verse nine. Salvation is from the Lord. Can you say that out loud with me? Salvation is from the Lord. In your Bible, Jonah is the most concrete illustration of what salvation is. Now there's other typical ones, Passover, Yom Kippur, uh, Abraham's offering up of Isaac and others. But this we can relate to and it actually happened in a very concrete way there were times in our lives as we have many different stories there are times in your life when you were in the belly of the fish the belly of a well it would have been a well of a marriage problem a well of an alcohol problem a well of a self-image problem a well of a bad relationship with some in-laws or some outlaws You were in the belly of the beast. You, like Jonah, were running from God and Jonah found himself in distress. Stress was all around, that's what the word distress means. Dissemination of stress, stress was everywhere. The spitting up of the fish is symbolic, it's a picture of rebirth. Jonah is about to be reborn out of sin. And it leads him in chapter 3 to to greater things, to greater things of the kingdom. He does a 180, and he did it because God did it. He had no part in it other than the fact that he was the one who prayed. Prayer and faith are going to be highlighted in today's text, but prayer and faith are kind of anti-works. They're what you do when there's nothing left to do. They're, They're the whispers of a soul in the middle of a tsunami and you simply say, save me. And unless God intervenes in a miraculous way, nothing's gonna happen. There's another fella by the name of Jesus Christ who spent three days in the belly of a a tomb, and three days later he walks out by his own power. The stone is rolled away, not because to let Jesus out, but because we need to be able to see in. Now Jesus at that point can walk through walls in his resurrected state, there's another fella in the Bible, in the New Testament, who will go to the area of Nineveh to persecute the church. He goes in the roundabout area here um, to, to be able to uh, confront and conflict and condemn and to kill Christians. And he will be struck blind. What's his name? Paul. How many days was he blind? Three days. Right, three days and three nights. This is a very concrete story that is your story. And these movements we see from Jonah 1 to Jonah 2 to Jonah 3 to Jonah 4 is your life. You ran from God, then you ran to God, then you ran with God, and then in certain points in your spiritual life, you're working against God. You're running against him because you're trying to do it in the flesh. Jonah, we relate well to. He's comedic. We can be a comedy of errors, We think we can run from God. We think nobody sees. We think there's private moments. Nobody sees you logging into those internet sites. Nobody sees what you're thinking in your mind towards that other person. No, God sees thoughts. He sees there's, with a omnipresent God, there is no such thing as a private moment. And we know better, but yet we still do it. And we become a comedy where God has to place us in the belly of a fish in order to spit us up onto a new place. And in that process, we see an outline, right? Your handout has the outline, right? Running from God. Then Easter, we looked at Matthew 12, Jesus's words running via God. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the one that allows you not to have to have the Jonah complex and to be a Jonah comedy. But we still do. And then today running to God. We're gonna talk about God's mercy towards Jonah as Jonah runs to him in prayer. This is a praying prophet at this point. He was rebellious, now he's repentant. Chapter three, running with God. Chapter four, running against God. You think that he learned his lesson. You think we have learned our lessons, but we too struggle with petulance. He becomes from a preaching prophet to a petulant prophet. We'll study that here in a couple of weeks. But today, let's continue down this road of looking at what it took for God to get a hold of Jonah, right? The key word of God in this text is great. God sends, who's a great God, has a great heart for Nineveh. He sends a prophet who's not so great. And then he has to send a great storm and a great wind. And then he sends a great well. And Jonah's key word is down. Jonah goes down to the docks to take a ship down to Tarshish. He goes down in the ship. Then he goes down into the water, And then by verse verse six, he comes up. God, through his mercy, leads him up. So let me give you another Dr. Seuss version of this story. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, blow. Jonah said, so. Captain said, bro. Jonah said, throw. Sailors say, whoa. (laughs) But they tossed Jonah in and he sank very low. But God had more places for Jonah to go. God said, hey fish. Great fish says, yes Lord, what's your wish? You know, this is a story in chapter one, not about the preacher, the prophet. It's about the faith of these sailors, these pagan sailors. It's about verse chapter one, verse 17, about the, the, the obedience of a fish. Well, now Jonah gets to the bottom of his story. We've said this a couple of times over the weeks. God often allows you to hit rock bottom. If you're here today at the bottom, God, hear this, God allows you to do, go through this. God allows you to get to the very lowest of places so that you can see that God is the rock at the bottom. You don't realize God is all you need till God is all you got. And if you're here and your marriage and your life and your relationships and your dependencies and your addictions and your hurts and your losses are too much for you to stomach. You're in a good place because you're going to hear about a good God who allows that so that he can get your attention. We're going to see that in this story. The second chapter of Jonah is no actions here. It's just prayer. And the good stuff starts happening to Jonah at the end. The good stuff really happens in chapter 3. 17th century English preacher by the name of Jeremy Taylor once wrote this. said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Now he's referring, of course, to being happy with God's will for our lives. See, for us to rebel against God's will, as Jonah did, is to invite the chastening hand of God. This is an illustration of salvation, very concrete, but it's also an illustration of the people that know better who say, I don't want your will. They don't say it verbally, maybe you do. We say it with our life, we do our thing, we get our money, we go eat our food, we drive in our car, we don't invest in the kingdom. Some of you are driving around in your tithe. (laughs) Some of you are living for yourself And you're not investing in the kingdom. By the end of this chapter, the kingdom will be front and center. And Jonah will say yes to the kingdom. But it took him to get to this low. What is it going to take? How low are you going to have to go with life? How empty is your life going to have to be? Your job going to have to be? Your marriage? Your fun? How much is God going to have to take in order to give you the greater thing? Like the illustration you might have seen on, on Facebook or any kind of meme where God has asking the little girl who's got this little teddy bear and he's asking her to give the teddy bear over and behind his back, the father has this huge teddy bear. That's how God works. The things you grab onto that are not a part of the kingdom. God promises terrible things for those who won't be happy in him. He will chasten you. The Westminster Confession is why we're talking about this in this, in this sense. That the chief end of man is to en- Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what he's training you to do. He's training you to enjoy him. Jonah could say with the psalmist, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Psalm 118, verse 18. Or the first time I fed fresh fish to my children, my daughter, Audrey, my youngest said, this fish tastes fishy. That's such a great statement. Does your life taste fishy? Are you in the middle of the belly of the beast? He smelled fishy. Actually, Trinity Moody said that, sorry. That's what's up there. You know, with this comes the story of all of us, that we have got to get downwind of ourselves in order to move up. And so if you're there, maybe you're in the kingdom, but you're not living for the kingdom. This is a statement, a a story of how God works to get you more in tune, more inclined, more dedicated, more devoted, more engaged. But for those of you that are not a part of his kingdom, this is your story of your salvation today, that God will hear your prayer of rescue. If you're in the middle of a lost life, God will rescue you. He prayed to God for his rescue And even though his prayer came from affliction, not affection, God listens to his prayer. That's amazing. Another fellow will be next to Jesus on his cross. He will have his own cross he's bearing, dying from his own sin. And he will say to Jesus, remember me in paradise. The thief on the cross. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a text of the whisper of a prayer, in the deepest moments of your life, the darkest times, and you have a story like that, when you really prayed. All right, so we're gonna look through this. When you get downwind of yourself and you whisper that prayer, verse one, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. He is in the fetal position. Why did he pray? Curled up in this fish. Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. One, He had nothing better to do. In chapter one, you get this image of Jonah running from the Lord, sleeping in the belly of the ship. I mean, he is checked out and now he's in the fish and there's nothing else he can do. But here's the second reason he prayed. It wasn't his first time to pray. He was raised right, he is a prophet of Israel. He knew better, he was a man of prayer. It also is not the first time in this text for him to pray either. I want you to notice something very few students of scripture see. Look at verse one. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and he said, I called out. What tense is the word called out? It's the past tense. Here's how I interpret that. He is in the stomach of the fish praying a prayer and remembering another prayer. The rest of these verses, especially down to verse 6, they, they make more sense when you think about him remembering his prayer in the water, not in the fish. All right, so, so verse 1 makes you think that he's praying this whole prayer in the fish, but he's praying about another prayer outside in the water. So he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's a watery grave. He's thrown into the water from the sailors, and he's sinking down, and he cries out to the Lord in the water. You're gonna see other, you've already heard it as I read it earlier, you're gonna see phrases about the vegetation of the ocean grabbing him. You're gonna see phrases about him going down to the bottom of the mountain of the, of the deep. He's in a watery grave. He is not. He's talking about a prayer. He's in the fish praying about a prayer that he previously prayed in the water. So, so he's he's been praying and it's that prayer that God answers. So he's praising the fact that God answered his previous prayer in the water or else this text really doesn't make a lot of sense. You have to take some gymnastics. You have to say, well, the fish had swallowed some seaweed. So he's so he's rub, you know, rolling around in the seaweed in the bottom of the, of the belly of the fish. Or when he goes down to the mountains, well, the, the fish swam down there. And that's how he's going a roller coaster and he's talking about motion sickness. Okay. So this is a prayer about prayers. And he quotes a lot of Psalms. This man had heard, this man had been praying at some level when he got thrown into the water. He says, I cried for help. That's his only plea. He saw the fish as a rescue in the middle. He had gone down this low. I cried out for help from the depth of Sheol and you heard my voice. Yes, it's a flare prayer. He's in great affliction and he pulls the trigger and God still hears those. If you're in the middle of that place, you are ready to send off a flare. We see very clearly in scripture that God answers the prayer for rescue. Even if it comes from affliction, not affection, God listens to your prayers. Now there is a certain amount of symmetry by verse three. Listen to this. For you had cast me into the deep. He knows that his watery grave, this horror that he's living in is because of God. This is a terrible thing that God is doing here because God terribly loves him. And he loves what God wants to do. He terribly loves the Ninevites. God has a a, a deep, graphic love for Jonah and the Ninevites. And he wants Jonah's story to be told here today. Jonah might be a comedy, but we're telling it. And Jonah is a name and a a passion um, for some of us to acknowledge that God tells us to go. And we say no, but eventually God gets his way with his people. That's how he works. But here, you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. That should sound familiar because that's what happened in chapter one. Let's compare the two. Chapter one, you see the sailors. Chapter two, you see the prophet. Chapter one, verse four, there is a crisis on the sea. Chapter one, verse 14, there's a prayer to Yahweh. Chapter 1, verse 15, the second part of that verse, there's a rescue from the storm. In chapter 1, verse 16, there is sacrifice and vows offered to God. You see the same thing in this chapter. In chapter 2, verse 3, there's a crisis in the sea. By verse 7, we saw it already in verse 2, but verse 2 and verse 7, there's a prayer to Yahweh, to the covenant God the God who keeps his promises, the God who tells you exactly what he thinks, the God who writes his name in pen and ink and says, thus saith the Lord, the God who wants to go on record and telling you who you are and who he is. And he's a good, good father. And he's the covenant God who keeps his promise. Everybody else will fail you. God will never fail you. He prays to Yahweh. And by verse six, he is rescued from drowning. <clears throat> in verse nine, he also, Jonah also sacrifices and offers vows to God. You're meant to compare these two. Jonah accepts that God is behind all this. The key word in verse three is the word you. Look at the second time it happens at the end of verse three. And in the current engulf me, the current, the Mediterranean current took over. But you are behind all this. All your breakers and billows passed over me. That sounds like the ocean. He's in the ocean here. And he says, God, you sent the ocean. You sent the ocean of this tragedy. You sent the ocean of my own folly. You sent it. It's your opposition. He accepts God's opposition. I see my kids do this as I've disciplined them over the years. They've all been trained that when they hear what they're to do and they know what they're to do and there's a clear boundary, a clear expectation and they step out of that boundary and there is an expectation of punishment or an expectation of something that's gonna be taken from them. When it happens, they accept it. They acknowledge it. They don't love it. They don't like it. It's not what they want, but they know and they've, been, they've heard over and over again that this is how I train them and this is how God trains you. <laughs> he, even though he is not happy with God's will, God leverages his pain. So he can leverage his word. See, he leverages his pain so that God gets a hold of his mouth. God leverages his pain to heat up his rear so the wax in his ears that's creating a block in his ears would be melted so that he could hear God and speak the word of God. This is how we work. We are some foolish people. I, I need the chastening of God and I accept his opposition. We pray for ourselves that our sins would find us out. We pray for our kids that their sins would find us out. We would not be able to sin long because I do not want to go astray. I don't wanna be a Jonah. I want want Jonah's confession here. He says, you are behind all this. Verse four, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight and I deserve this. Nevertheless, I will look again. Everybody say again. I think that's the key word there. See, Jonah knew better. I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, is this the temple in Jerusalem? By verse seven, he says, in the best translation of verse seven is that my prayers rose to your temple. I think this is the heavenly temple. I think this is heaven. See, he knows better. He knows that God will receive him. He is confident in his approach to God. God is not lost, Jonah is lost. When I hear testimonies that say, hey, I found God back in 1988, God was never lost. That's that's not the right way to say it. No, Jonah was lost, not God. And he knows that repentant souls get the ear and the eyes and the hand of God. How many passages of scripture do we have where a repentant soul comes to God and asks and God denies? not a one not one single scripture he is returning to the faith of his father david he remembers the temple in jerusalem and how that is a picture of the temple in heaven he says i returned to heavenly things he he he's this is a rebellious child picking up his mama's bible and reading verses that mama taught him i guess we could quote Merle Haggard, the theologian Merle Haggard again. Mama tried, mama tried, right? And I remember how hard she tried, and I owned it. He's remembering, if you have a commentary on this later, you might read this. There are so many quotes of the psalmist here. He's, he's remembering the old hymns of his faith. I, we do a lot of prison ministry in the month of December, and, and we always try to have a singer before the speaker And these singers will get up there and some of them will pull out an old hymn or two. Um, They try to play music that would get the attention of the inmates. Um, But sometimes they'll take a a modern song and add spiritual words to it. Uh, But a few of them, I remember last year one playing a hymn and man, I could see tears in the eyes of a lot of the inmates because they were remembering their childhood and hearing these old hymns of the faith that they grew up with. And That's what you're seeing here. He's going back to generations of the past. He's going back to the faith of his father, David. He is this literary device through this passage is Psalms. Verse five, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds, ocean vegetation were wrapped around my head. That doesn't sound like he's in the fish to me. I descended to the roots of the mountain. So he goes from a watery grave to a watery horror to a watery descent. He is going down. The earth with its, I descended to the roots of the mountains, to the Mariana trench. My, the earth with its bars was around me forever. It's, it was as if it wasn't gonna end. So bad. But I love I love the butts of scripture. You're gonna see another one here in verse 9. Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death. You deserve the death you're living into in, but, but, hold the phone, stop the, the train. <laughs> the gift of God is eternal life. You can't earn what God wants to give you. He wants to give you life. He did not create you to die. He created you to live. No, Jesus is the only one that he took on flesh in order to die. No, he put flesh on you. To live. You don't make, you don't, you don't live to make blood. You make blood to live. You go through life to live, but we live in darkness. One of my other favorite butts in scripture. You don't have to turn there. It's Ephesians chapter two. And you, Paul's pointing the finger. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what you were in which you formerly walked. You just went through life with those sins and those trespasses. According to the course of this world, you were just going with the flow. The river was going that way and so were you, but you didn't realize, maybe you didn't realize that that river was owned by the prince of the power of the air. It is a river that is satanically charged and you are just going with the flow of it, of the spirit that is now at working in the sons of disobedience. Anybody you see who's a son of disobedience, this, this river of sin is just flowing in their life. Among them, we too. He says, I got a finger, finger pointed at you. I got three pointing back at me. We too walked. All formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. We just, we're living for our stomachs. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whatever our mind wanted, whatever our stomach wanted, we just fed our bellies full. It was a buffet and we didn't see it that way. We were, in truth, by nature, children of wrath. In our very essence, God God was targeting us. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In God's eyes, we're all the same genus species. We were sinners, but... But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgresses, he made us alive. Who made you alive? Did you make yourself alive? By your choice, by your work? No. Did Jonah rescue himself? No. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Isn't that good? That's the good, that, we call that the good news. We call that the gospel, that there is a but in your story. I don't know if there is. Where, where has God butted in to your story? If he hasn't, today is that day when he will come in. He is the difference maker. He is the soul saver. He can take that soul tsunami and he can calm it with a word. Now this rebellious child picks up his Bible in the middle of all this and he owns these truths that God can rescue him. You, look at this, verse six, you have brought up my life from the pit. And this is a loaded phrase here, oh Lord, my God. Because Jonah's repentance and his prayer, he says, oh Yahweh, my God. He's making this very personal. He is confessing so much in this. He said, I know you have plans. I know you keep your promises. I know here's, we got, God hears his prayer for rescue. He, Jonah accepts his oppression, that God is against him, his opposition. And then the other part of the rock, the, the top part of the rock is that Jonah trusted in God's covenant. Did you know that there's a covenant? deal waiting for you to grab there's an old testament and a new testament in the old testament it was preparatory for all that jesus would do the old deal it was bilateral because it was a deal made with israel to provide the messiah to the world and there was to be protection there was circumcision because they were to protect the the reproductive organ that would produce a child of abraham isaac and jacob and david And when that covenant was fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus says there's a new arrangement. And it's a new deal that really allows every one of us to come directly to God. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 says that God will give you universal knowledge. Every one of you can know God directly. You can have a one-on-one personal relationship with God. On top of that, it isn't that you had to go to a place of worship In the old deal, you had to go to the temple. If you didn't have the Spirit coming upon you for a special work, like Bezalel and Olihab and and Samson and David and Saul and these other people that had the Spirit come upon them and then would leave because of their sin, if you didn't have the Spirit on you, you had to go to the temple because the Shekinah glory was in the temple for a while. And in that process, the people went to the temple, but in the New Testament... This new covenant, this Yahweh covenant keeping God has provided for you to be a temple. He wants his spirit to be in you, not just with you. That's how close can you get any closer? He wants to power you from the inside where every place you are is a place of worship. Where every place you go, you have an open channel to the Holy One where you have, oh Lord, my God. See, he's remembering here. Look at verse seven. While I was fainting away, while I was dying, I remembered Yahweh. I remembered who he is. I remembered his covenant faithfulness. And my prayers, literally in Hebrew it says, they rose to you and into your holy temple, a place of great import. The temple was a gospel track. Everything you needed to know about what it means to approach God. You walk into the temple, you're accosted by the smells of barbecue and not the best kind either. Blood mixed with charred flesh. And it said sacrifice is required for you to have a relationship with God. And we look at it and we remember what Jesus did. Then you walk a little further into the temple and you see candelabras everywhere that in order for you to have a relationship with God, there has to be the illumination of light. Then you walk a little further and it's a gospel track. You go a little further and there's a place to wash your hands because washing is required. Unless God wash all of you, you can't know him. And then you go a little further and there's the smell of fresh baked bread. Finally, you get some incense, you get some bread smells because to be a child of God means you are hungry for the things of God and his word becomes central. But then you go up against the curtain. Now, truly, you don't get that far. You and I, we don't get that far. We are three courts out in the courts of the Gentiles. If you're a Jew, you get to go one court in. If you're a woman, you're even further out. The court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, but then there's the court of the priests as they're able to. But one man, one man chosen from birth, anointed as a child of Aaron, he is the high priest. One time a year on Yom Kippur, he can go through all these exercises of washing and other kinds of sacrifices. He comes to the curtain and he can go in one time of year. And it's a scary, fearful thing as he goes in. But Jesus said that he's the temple. And he would destroy that and it would be raised up so that you and I could, according to Corinthians, be temples of the Holy Spirit. So no longer do the people go to the temple, the temple goes to the people. And we are walking epistles. We are a peculiar people, a kingdom of priests who go to the people and we tell others. And if we don't, God will orchestrate your life to get you to that place. He will chastise you to get you to that place. So you will be a witness one way or the other, either in a Jonah comedy or a preaching Paul. He wants this for you. See, he trusted in God's covenant, even though he had every reason to doubt God's compassion, God loves him enough to punish him. Some of you feel punished by the Lord. You're in chastising, in a chastening place in life. And you, because of what's going on in your life, you have every, you have a number of reasons, not every reason, but a number of reasons to doubt God's compassion. But don't. The fact that you're still breathing, the fact that you haven't fainted. I was fainting away. The fact that you're here, that you're hearing about the covenant love of God. God is not done with you. My prayer came to you and to your holy temple. No, no, God loves you. That's why he's letting these things. Here's the, the full Bible story of prayer. Prayer, the primary emphasis in the Bible is that prayer is done by faith. God wants faith. And prayer is the greatest indication of the reality that you trust him. People that trust God pray to him. People that don't trust God don't pray. Little prayer, little faith, much prayer, much faith. It's not about your faith, but prayer is an indication of that faith. Why? Because an attitude of dependence is the most appropriate response to the creator-creature relationship. Anything less is insulting. Why? This is the way Jesus teaches, right? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. That says two things. Acknowledges two things. When you pray like that, you are acknowledging your dependence on God as a loving and wise father. Our father who art in heaven, you are also secondly acknowledging that he rules over all from his heavenly throne. And that's where is that's where getting. Look at verse eight. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. There, now, the Hebrew word for faithfulness here is the word hesed. You spell that, C-H-E-S-E-D. We pronounce it hesed. This is the kind of unique love that God has. When you see the word Yahweh, oftentimes you see hesed within a few words because the covenant name for God leads him to love in a very special way. It's a covenant love. It's the love of a husband and a wife where you have promised, I vowed 21 years ago to love Wendy Lee Ferguson. I have a faithful love for her, a love built on vows, a love built on a covenant. And so love's way of, God's love of, way of loving is so unique, in English we struggle with translating it. So we have to say faithfulness, or in the book of Psalms, loving kindness. Have you ever seen that phrase? Loving kindness, multiple words because it's so unique in the American mind, we have to say multiple words. He is faithful in his love. That's what is acknowledging. He said these idols, literally in Hebrew, these empty vanities forsake God. I think faithfulness is representing God. Faithfulness, that God, you are the one that is the greatest joy and the most faithful, but I have, because of idols, forsaken you. I've cut the limb upon which I've been sitting. No more but I will sacrifice to you. Jonah is now committed to obeying God with the voice of thanksgiving. It goes from devotion to thankfulness. Gratitude, like prayer, is one of the most basic religious affections. You show me somebody who knows Jesus, they are spilling forth gratitude. The most common prayer. I never had to teach my daughters to pray, thank you so much, thank you so much, thank you so much. When I've asked them to pray, that's their go-to. When the people get up here on the stage and you hear pastors and other people praying, that's what they're praying. Thank you so much, thank you so much. That's why when the Lord taught, when Jesus taught his disciples to prayer, did you notice that one's missing? Our Father, are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There isn't anything in there about thankfulness because you don't have to tell believers that. They're gonna say thankful. This, he says, it starts with sacrifice. Then goes to thankfulness, and then he says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. We grow by making commitments. He says, I vowed certain things. I don't know what he's vowed. Something from the bottom of the ocean. Maybe he vowed to preach to Nineveh. He said, I'll go go where you tell me to go. Where you go, I'll go. What you tell me to say, I'll say. Maybe he prayed that, I don't know. The point is that Jonah is now committed fully to obeying God because he trusts him. He trusts his character. We're gonna talk about that in the next couple of weeks. He knew God's character and it made him prejudice because he thought he, didn't, he was prejudiced and he, knowing God's character, he didn't want the gospel to come to the Ninevites. We'll talk about that. But here he understands how God works and he's thankful and he's sacrificial and he's making vows. I've been asked this over the years, what does that mean? What is this kind of sacrifice and thankfulness and making commitments to God mean in terms of God's will. It means you hand him a blank sheet of paper and you take your pen and you write on the bottom of that your name and you say, God, you fill in the rest. That's what we're talking about with consecration. That is the commitment. That is the, the work of Jonah. That is his confession. Where you go, I'll go. He yielded to God's kingdom at this point. He saw his covenant, and he saw what that covenant wanted to do, and he said, I'm in. Even though it took him hitting bottom to bow, God liberated him from his pit. Even though it took him hitting bottom for him to bow, I don't know what it's gonna take you. What are you gonna have to do in order to bow before him? I don't know what it's gonna take, but God's willing to do it. That's how he works. He's faithful. We're not, he is. He will put more on you than you can handle. Have you ever heard people say that scripture wrong? God will never give me more than I can handle. There's this passage in Corinthians that says, no, that's not what it says. 1013 says, God won't give you more temptation than you can handle. And he'll provide for you a way up to stand up under. No, God is in the business of giving you more than you can handle. So you'll pray to a supernatural God who will answer your prayers in miracles. This is how God works. You're a part of a supernatural spiritual kingdom if you're a part of Christ. And if you live in the flesh and fight the battles of the flesh with the weapons of the flesh, he will lead you to learn that that's not how he wants you to fight. He wants you to fight with spiritual weapons, with prayer. And so the weight of life, if this is how you feel, you're weighed down with your child, with your wife, with your spouse, with your job, with your health. God is using that. God is using that. Retired missionary from China recounted his experience to a bunch of young people. He told them story after story of the supernatural, great things that God had done as he was a missionary in China. After the lecture, a young woman came up to him and she said, I I would give my life to have your experience. The old missionary smiled and he said, Well, young lady, that is exactly what it cost me. Cost me my life. Here's my life, Lord. Verse 10, then, everybody say then. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. What I'm encouraging you today is to have a habit of repentance. There's plenty of stuff for you to repent from. If you're like me, sins easily encroach your heart. My heart is an idol-making factory and I'm putting all sorts of stuff in between God and me daily daily. That's what an idol is, anything that gets more of your attention, affection, and abilities than God. And I have to have a constant awareness of that and a habit of prayer and repentance. This is the heart of God. Listen to Jesus' words. It's on the screen. Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a spirit. These were the good guys, we would have said. These are, the, these are the evangelical right. These are the godly people. A Pharisee and a tax collector. These are the wicked people. These are the shysters. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers or even like that tax collector over there praying, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isaiah 66, verse 2 This is the one God says he esteems. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Lord listens and answers the prayers of the repentant. James 4, eight, draw near to God and he will what? He will what? He will what? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Number of pastors after Easter were talking about prayer in general, and they were saying, Man, it's rough Easter services, or I'm just dead and tired and empty. And I think I'm gonna have to pray a lot this week to get over that week, Easter is a high point, come off that mountain. And they said, I, One pastor said, I think the key to prayer is your hands, you know, you gotta hold your hands a certain way. And the other pastor said, That's silly. The, The way to pray is on your knees. It's about your knees. It's about bowing your back. And the third pastor said, you're all crazy. The most important prayers I've prayed, the ones that God has heard that have broke the veil of heaven are the ones where I'm flat on my face. Now, as they're saying this, there's a telephone repairman repairing the telephones at the local coffee shop where they're saying this. And he walks over to him. He says, hey guys, can I interject something? They said, sure. He said, I found that the most powerful prayers I ever made was while hanging upside down from my heels in a, from a power line, 40 feet above the ground. Those were my most powerful prayers. So are you 40 feet above the ground in some way today? God will hear your prayers. Whisper it, cry it out loud, say it. Let's pray. Lord, I know that people relate well to this story. I relate well to to this story, Jonah's prayer life had been in trouble. Psalm 6, six, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But because he ran from you, because Jonah cried out in prayer and he returned to you, you heard. So we run back to you in prayer, hanging 40 feet above the ground or not. Either we will keep on sinning and quit praying or we will keep on praying and quit sinning. We pray that we would have a habit of prayer and repentance. And we'd get very specific about it. Jonah says that you answered him. You heard his voice and his prayers went up before you. May that be said of us today in Jesus' name, amen.